Well, the Sermon on the Mount. I can't believe this is the last sermon in our series. Can you believe it? We've been walking through this portion of Scripture really almost for the last year or so. Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. And today we come to the end. So if you're visiting today, you've hit the jackpot. It's a great day to visit because Jesus is going to summarize all of his teaching in these final verses. He's going to end the sermon with a rhetorical wake-up call. And today we'll see that there are two paths, two teachers, two claims, and two foundations you can choose from. Two ways to live. This has been the message all along in the Sermon on the Mount. You can be blessed or not. You can be salt or, and light or not. You can call God your father or not. You can be anxious or not. You can value Jesus as the treasure of your life or not. All throughout the sermon, Jesus is contrasting two groups of people. But here's the interesting thing. He's not contrasting what we normally think of as good people and bad people. He's not talking about one group of people who prays and another group of people over here who don't pray. No, both groups pray. He's not talking about one group of people who give to the poor and then over here he's talking about another group of people who are stingy and never give. No, both groups give. Now, Jesus is not contrasting good people and bad people in the way that we normally think about those categories. He's contrasting religious people and Christians. On the outside, both do similar things. But on the inside, there are different reasons for why they do what they do. They are really two different ways to live. And here's the scary thing. Those two ways lead to two different destinations. And here's the point of our passage. If you're taking notes today, just one simple point. There are two ways to live. Choose the way to God. There are two ways to live. Choose the way to God. And all of us make this choice. Jesus gives us four different examples of the choice in the text that Agnes just read for us. So the first, verses 13 through 14, we see that there are two gates. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. There's, there's a wide gate, a wide road, and most people are on that road. It's easier. It looks less painful. It's the one you can see with your eyes. It's obvious. You don't have to search for it. This is the majority belief. Taking this path helps you kind of go with the flow or fit in with the crowd. It's less painful. The narrow road, the narrow gate's harder to, to find, to discern. You have to search for it. And it presents danger. The word here for narrow has the idea of being in distress, to be stuck. 
Maybe you've been hiking in a narrow path filled with thorn bushes, or you've been spelunking in a cave. You're crawling through a dark, narrow passage fraught with danger. I've never done that, but I've had my share of MRIs. Maybe you've had a, an MRI and you're there in that tube and you just, you just can't move. By the end of it, I'm starting to have a panic attack because there's nowhere to go and it feels like the, the walls are caving in on you. Well, Jesus is going to tell us that the narrow road is going to hurt. Upon first glance, surely the wide road looks like, yes, that's the one that's going to lead me to joy. The narrow road to pain. That's why it's shocking when Jesus says, actually, that's the way it looks to you. That's the way it's going to feel for you at times. But reality isn't what it seems. If you take the wide road, the the way of the world, it actually leads to destruction. It's the narrow one, the one with the trials and tribulations. That's the one that leads to life. It's the complete opposite of what we think, a total paradigm shift. Now the problem though is we naturally choose the easy way, don't we? That's the one that's appealing to us with our eyes. Well, one thing Jesus makes clear in our text is that both paths, the two ways, don't lead to the same destination. Now, the way to God is not one way among many, one path among many up the same mountain to the same destination. There are two different destinations. And the wide road is an attempt to get to God. It might be the eightfold path or karma, law-keeping, religious devotion. It's religion. And we saw that religious people gave to the poor. In chapter 6, we saw that the religious people in Jesus' day, they gave to the poor, but why? That's, that's the question. Why? It wasn't to help the poor, was it? It was to bring honor and attention to themselves. It was to earn God's favor. We saw religious people pray. They prayed everywhere. They prayed in the synagogues. They prayed in the street corners. They even prayed by themselves. But why? Well, they thought that for their many words, God would hear them and give them stuff, that God would reward them. It's a power play. Well, the wide road leads to destruction because the Bible says none of us are good enough to earn our way to God. That we've all sinned and we've all separated ourselves from him. The wide road says, here's how you can reach for God, but we can't. The narrow road says, here's how God reaches down for you. And he does. Now, here's why it's so hard. It's because we don't like to hear that we can't reach for God. It's a blow to our pride to admit that we're sinners and need God's grace. In Dante's book, The Inferno, in Dante's Inferno, there's one road that leads to destruction. And over it, says these words, Abandon all hope, all ye who enter here. Well, in Dante's Inferno, there's another road that leads to life. And there's a sign over that one that says, Abandon all pride, all ye who enter here. 
There's no room through the narrow gate. There's no room down the narrow path for us to bring our own righteousness with us. But that's okay because the message of Christianity is that the true story of how God reaches down for us in love despite our unrighteousness. Well, friend, that's the good news. Christianity is not a set of rules for you to reach up to God. It's the declaration of the good news that God has reached down for us. Oh, what hope we have. No, the narrow road is is hard because you can't bring anything with you except yourself. There's no room for your works. There's no room for your reputation. There's no room for your family's history to earn your entrance, for your nationality, for anything you've done. Feeding the poor, praying. Not only do you not get to bring anything with you, most everyone else is on the wide road. And so as you walk the narrow road, others won't tolerate it. They'll judge you as intolerant. Or perhaps you've, you've heard this critique of Jesus before. Your Jesus is too narrow. How can Christianity say that it's the only way? But think about what someone is doing when they make that claim. They're saying Jesus is wrong, but I'm the judge and arbiter of absolute truth. My view of truth is superior to Jesus' claims. And do you see that? The idea that all roads lead up that same mountain is a religion. And this religion of relative truth denies absolute truth now is just one more religion competing with the others. To say you can't judge between religions is actually to judge between religions. To say that you can't determine right and wrong beliefs is a determination of right and wrong beliefs. Oh, brothers and sisters, to follow Christ, we can't say both roads go to the same place. That's to believe a different religion. Jesus himself says in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, the narrow road is difficult because you have to give up everything to go down it. I have a friend from a nearby country. Uh, He ran away from home after escaping police who were arresting him merely for his faith in Jesus. He found a smuggler who he paid to take him anywhere, anywhere away for safety. Now, normally when I book transportation, I don't know about you, but normally when I book transportation, I want a ticket that tells me where I'm going. I mean, I don't buy the ticket unless it has a departure date and a destination of my choice Those are pretty much the things that I look for. But my friend, he got in a boat, had no idea where he was going to. Weeks later, he wakes up one morning in Ireland, halfway around the world. And stories like this are common. You pay a smuggler without knowing where they're going to take you, without knowing whether you're going to even make it. Well, when they arrive somewhere, they apply to be a refugee. And while awaiting citizenship, my friend takes hourly jobs washing dishes at a a takeaway restaurant. The government gives him the equivalent of 400 dirhams a month. That's it. He's given up his career. His family have disowned him. This is the, the narrow road. And Jesus says in Matthew 10, those who leave everything for the sake of Christ and the gospel will experience persecutions, but no one has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me, and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present age. 
Well, the path might not look like much, but if you take it, you'll be led to everlasting glory. In the uh, BBC television show, Doctor Who, there's a t- the Time Lords can travel the universe in time, and there's a spaceship called the TARDIS, which will take you to everlasting wonder. It doesn't look like much, though. From the outside, the TARDIS looks like an old British police box, police telephone box or booth, just a tiny little place. But on the inside, on the inside, we see that there's a massive world of excitement. There's a library in there even a swimming pool, all in that tiny little booth. It makes no sense from the outside. It's just like the kingdom of God, isn't it? Everything depends on whether you experience it from the outside or if you experience it from the inside. Because the outside is nothing. But on the inside... We see that the narrow road leads to life. What you see is not what you'll get. It's a hidden gate. It's a small booth with a whole world inside. Well, there are two paths, two ways to live. Choose the way to God. Well, there are also two trees. Look at verses 15 through 20. It's a simple point. Healthy trees bear good fruit and diseased trees bear bad fruit. There are two kinds of teachers you can decide to follow. The diseased ones here are false prophets. A prophet could at times foretell the future, but more normally they spoke a word from God. A, A false prophet lies about God's word. I mean, do you think you could recognize a false prophet if you saw one? It's actually a lot harder than it looks. That's Jesus' point. Two trees, one's sick and one's not, but on the outside, they look the same. But beneath the surface, Jesus tells us three things about false teachers. First, that they're deceptive. They're deceptive. I heard a story this week told by an old sports coach, uh, and he tells a story like this. There's a man named Frank. And Frank had a Labrador retriever, and he saw his dog standing near the front porch with a dead rabbit in his mouth. Now, Frank was a bit shocked because that dead rabbit was the family pet of his neighbor. That's a bad day, isn't it? Now, Frank didn't know what to do. He scrambled, he was nervous, and he nervously took the rabbit inside of his house. He began to wash it, wash the blood off, washed the dirt off, and he even took a blow dryer. It's kind of awkward. And he blow dried the hair of the rabbit and made it all puffy and fluffy and clean. And then later on that night, Frank went on a mission. Now, this, this sounds like a bad idea, doesn't it? But he has this idea, and he goes on a mission, and he takes Fluffy, or whatever the rabbit was was called, and he hops over his neighbor's fence. He scurries and kind of slithers across the backyard, and he puts the rabbit back in their cage, closes the cage, scurries along the backyard grass, hops over the fence, and thinks, yes, that's that. Mission accomplished. Well... The next morning, there was a big pound on the front door of Frank's home. Bang, bang. And he opened the door, and there was his neighbor with his rabbit in his hand. And the neighbor said, well, we have a real sticky situation here in the neighborhood, Frank. There's a real sticky here in the neighborhood. 
And Frank said, um, why? What, what, what are you talking about, friend? We said, Frank, my rabbit died three days ago and I buried it. And some sickie dug it up and put it back in the rabbit cage. <laughs> That's awkward. That's another bad day. No matter what you do with that dead rabbit, you can clean it off. You can blow dry it. You can make it look all puffy, all pretty. You can put it back in its home. It can look good from the outside, but it's still dead. This is what false teachers do. They deceive. They make something look good that's not good. They decorate their doctrine with makeup or a blow dryer. It's like a whitewashed tomb. Looks good from the outside, but the inside there's death. Well, here's the tricky thing though. These false teachers, Jesus says, come in sheep's clothing. Sheep is a term in the Bible for the people of God. So a false teacher coming in sheep's clothing is someone who looks and someone who sounds like a believer. Well, one of the ways they deceive people is by teaching a false gospel that says if you follow extra rules, God will accept you. Now, some of you may have come from a religion where there were lots of rules, lots of regulations that you would do to, to, to try and please God. Now, people's hearts may not have been pure and holy, but it didn't matter as long as you didn't drink a certain drink or you didn't wear a certain kind of clothing. You didn't have a certain kind of tattoo or, or play a drum in the church or any number of rules. It could be, could be anything. The problem with these rules is that they're not in the Bible. It's false teaching and some fall for it because they're promised that if you follow these particular rules and regulations and ordinances and, and, and things that somehow you'll please God. Somehow you'll reach up to God. Now deep down, we don't mind rules too much. Deep down, we like extra rules because we can feel good about ourselves since it's actually not that hard to keep rules. Of course, here's the thing. We also like to be the one who chooses the rules which we're going to follow. Now, recognizing false teachers, we recognize them by the rules, by what they say. We can also recognize false teachers often by what they don't say as well. False teachers may preach about God's love, but fail to talk about how we need to repent of our sin, which separates us from God's love. Now, in Matthew 21, Jesus actually says something astounding. He tells the religious teachers, I mean, this, this was shocking in that day. He tells the religious teachers, hey, those prostitutes over there, those tax collectors, they're actually going to get into the kingdom of God before you. I mean, that was astounding truth, because here are these religious teachers, they're doing all kinds of good things. There. Hey, I'm praying, I'm, 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 I'm giving, I'm doing all these things. And Jesus says, hey, actually, you know, you've missed it. I mean, that was scandalous teaching. He, Jesus is saying, those people over here, the, 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 the quote, sinners, they're closer to God than the so-called holy people. Well, Jesus says, you can't know me unless you're willing to lose your religious rules as a means of salvation. How false teachers deceive but they're also dangerous. They look like sheep. Jesus calls them ravenous wolves. That means ferocious. Now, Pastor Chuck Swindoll tells a story about a person just finishing gourmet cooking school. Now, she had friends over, and she decided that she was going to put 
her new cooking skills to the ultimate test. So here's what she did. She made a starter filled with dog food. Now, how many of you have eaten dog food before? Actually, no, don't raise your hand. Don't confess that. That's okay. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. But she made the starter filled with dog food. Now, not just dog food. That might be too obvious. She took the dog food and served the canine cuisine on the tastiest crackers with a wedge of the finest imported cheese, bacon bits, the glorious bacon bits and olive, all topped with a sliver of pimento. And she took those morsels and she placed them on the most elegant silver tray that she had. What do you think happened as people ate them? Well, they absolutely loved them. Her friends couldn't get enough of them. They kept coming back more for more and more and more dog food. I mean, that's crazy. This is what false teachers are doing. They're serving something that looks and tastes okay, but is actually phony and deceptive. People don't know what they're actually getting. Oh, Redeemer Church, I'm not concerned about open heresy, meaning teachers that, that, that are on YouTube or in books you read or friends that, that say things like they hate Jesus and Jesus isn't divine and, and, and this is, the Bible is all wrong and terrible. Those things are easy to spot. You understand those things. We, we understand those things. It's easy to see the theological error in that. Now, Jesus is describing here that dangerous false teachers are ones who come clothed in truth who actually sound awfully like what the Bible says. And their lives look awfully like the lives of Christians. They look like sheep. Now, it might not hurt you immediately, but a regular diet of dog food will eventually make you sick. Diseased fruit may look the same, but the poison will eventually kill you. Well, third thing about false teachers is their disclosure. They're deceptive, dangerous, but they will disclose themselves eventually. The imagery Jesus uses meant a lot to the original audience. In Palestine, there was a certain thorn bush with berries that looked like grapes. There was also a a thistle with a fig-looking flower. The point is that while there may be superficial similarity between true and false teachers, on closer inspection over time, you'll notice the difference. Given enough time, people will be true to their inner nature. A rotten tree will eventually produce rotten fruit. Well, how do you know which teacher to follow? Verse 16, you'll recognize them by their fruits. Verse 20, you'll recognize them by their fruits. You'll find that the dead rabbit is dead. You'll check the ingredients of the starter and you'll examine it more closely and you'll figure out that you've just put dog food in your mouth. You'll go brush your teeth for an hour or two. No, the fruit tree can only produce the kind of fruit it's supposed to produce. You have to examine it beneath the surface. Well, here's one example. Here, here in Dubai, if you've ever tried to pay a store with a 500 dirham bill, you'll almost always get treated like an alien. Have you noticed this? This has happened to you. They look at you. How dare you pay with that 500 dirham bill? Do you have smaller bills and smaller change? Well, this happens all the time. If you're actually able, though, to pay with the 500 dirham bill, their next step is to make sure that that bill is legitimate. 
So they might examine it briefly. Maybe they put it under this light contraption thing to, to see if it's real. You know, if you take a bill from your family game of Monopoly and try to pay, you'd get laughed at. But there are some good counterfeits out there. Well, how do you learn to spot false teachers? Well, we have to study the real thing. A counterfeit specialist doesn't spend all their time looking at fakes. They can never look at all the fakes. There are so many endless possibilities out there of people making fake bills to try to cheat and try to scam. And so they learn everything about the bill that's real. They look at every little, little shade, every little design, every little, little nook and cranny, every corner. And they study the real thing. We as Christians have to study the, the real thing. We have to read our Bibles regularly. Friend, are you reading your Bible? Do you even know what's inside? Are you buying books from our bookstall? Those are books that we've specifically chosen that will be good for you. We have to study theology. This is why we started the Gulf Training Center and why Eric Zeller and others devote their energy to this ministry. We want to grow in our knowledge of the true God. And we're careful not to just watch the preacher online because they sound good. You know, it's easy because there's very few preachers that are on the, the God Tube or God TV or whatever it is, and they sound good. But that's how they get on TV. Their ministries have lots of money, and they have big followings. And so they, they preach these messages on TV, and we can be mesmerized by them because they sound so eloquent and so good. But friend, just because a preacher is on TV preaching doesn't mean they're preaching the truth. Check what you're hearing on TV, on the internet, in books you read. Check what you're watching with what God's Word says. And for that matter, the elders here at Redeemer don't want you to take our word for what we say. Even when I'm preaching here in this pulpit, don't take it as infallible truth. There's no human who is infallible in their teaching. Everything that even comes from this pulpit here at Redeemer Church of Dubai, make sure to check what we say with the Bible to make sure we're preaching truth. Choose the narrow path, but also choose the right preacher. Two paths, two trees, two ways to live. Choose the way to God. Well, verses 21 through 22, we see two claims. It's the third section out of four. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many, many works in your name? Well, we have to distinguish between the right path and teacher, but we also have to dis distinguish between authentic and counterfeit Christians. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are terrifying words. And whenever Jesus speaks about that day, he's talking about the last day, the judgment day. On that day, Jesus says, a group of people will say, hey, hey, look, look at my accomplishments. I prophesy in your name. These people were teaching about God. Now, can this be, can someone who teaches the truth not be a Christian? Now, I talked about false teachers teaching false things, but can someone who's teaching the truth actually not be a follower of Jesus? Well, back in seminary, when I was studying theology, we had a chapel service, and one day we had a guest preacher, and he challenged those of us in attendance 
to turn to Jesus in faith to be saved if we hadn't. And I remember thinking to myself, what, 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 wait a minute, Pastor. Um, I, I think you've made a mistake. <laughs> uh, do you know where you are? This is 3900 Swiss Avenue. You're preaching to Christians. You're preaching to Christian professors, to future Christian pastors. Why are you asking us to come to faith in Christ? And at that point, there was a, a real awkward silence in the chapel. And then he said he didn't want to take anything for granted. He said that pre preparation for ministry, even doing the ministry, doesn't equate with salvation. He was right. And I've never forgotten his words. You can know the truth and not be a Christian. The truth may have gotten to your head, but has God given you a new heart? Well, these individuals also cast out demons in God's name. They do many mighty works. Not only do they know the truth, even teach the truth, they actually did amazing things. They did miracles. Now, God may have allowed them for some reason, or they could have done these through the deeds of Satan, or maybe miracles were faked. Maybe a lot of what they did was contrived. We don't know. That's not the point here in these verses. The point is they look like believers, even teachers and even leaders, pastors. And on that last day, they're even calling Jesus Lord. I mean, how confusing can it get? This was a big deal because to call him Lord wasn't merely to say sir or mister. This was the divine name. They have good doctrine. It even looks like they have a relationship. But that's not all. Because in their language back then, their culture, you'd emphasize something not with an exclamation point. You'd emphasize something not by being loud or in writing. You wouldn't emphasize what you're saying by adding an exclamation point. What you do is instead you would double what you're saying. You would repeat. You would double the name. So when King David grieves his son Absalom, he, he says, Oh, Absalom, my son. Oh, Absalom, my son. And when Jesus calls Martha, do you remember what he says? He says, Martha, Martha. Now he knows what he's doing. There was an intensity of emotion. Now these people know God intellectually and there's even an emotional engagement with, with God. They're preaching God's word. They're healing people. They're changing lives. And Jesus is saying, this is what Jesus is saying to us. Jesus is saying that it's possible to be in church your whole life and not know God. And then in verse 23, he utters perhaps the scariest words in the Bible. Jesus says to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, I hope there's nobody in this room who will ever hear Jesus say that to them. Well, then the question we have to ask is, how do you know if Jesus knows you? Well, back in verse 21, a Christian is the one who does the will of the Father. She's the one who completely surrenders her will. 
He's the one obedient to God by relinquishing control over their life and trusting Jesus to save them. You have to know him, not just know about him. You can't simply acknowledge him. You have to submit to him. If you don't, verse 23 says you lose Jesus. The only real punishment, the the ultimate nightmare, the greatest tragedy is not that we would lose things in this life. It's that at the end of our life, you spend your whole life looking for love only in the end to miss out on true love and meaning. And we have two paths, two teachers, two claims, two ways to live. Choose the way to God. And finally, verses 23 through 27, there are two foundations. This is the the fourth and final section of the passage today and the ending to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus summarizes all the teaching we've done this past year by comparing two men building two houses. These houses represent their effort, their ministry, their lives. Now, what's the difference between the two? Because the man who's building his house on the sand looks awfully smart at first, doesn't he? Because he's building his house, it looks all pretty, he's making progress. Whereas the other guy, what's he doing? He's way behind. Right, he's still digging. The other guy's making progress. You could see it with your eye. The other guy's just making a hole. He's, he's, he's digging. The other guy's speeding ahead. The second man looks foolish. But then again, things aren't what they seem, are they? The second man is digging for the foundation. And then he builds his house on the rock. He's finished second. And so when you step back and you're across the street and you're looking at these two houses after they're built, what do you notice? Well, you don't really notice anything different, do you? Two houses. That's what you see. They look fine. One finished way before the other, but the houses, they they look okay. All is good for both of them until when? Well, until the, the rain pours. Until the floods come and the winds begin to howl and crash. The house on the sand falls. I mean, imagine the Burj Khalifa being built without a foundation. One sandstorm and down it goes. Down goes the house built on the sand. The trials of life reveal the truth. So who's the fool now? Well, the house built on the rock is still standing. Well, the rock is Jesus Christ. We know that. Ephesians 2 says Christ is the chief cornerstone. Acts 4, Jesus is the stone rejected. 1 Peter 2, Jesus is the precious stone. Well, what does it mean to build a foundation on the rock? Well, it means more than just hearing God's word, more than just becoming familiar with it. It's actually becoming obedient to it. Not obedient in following a list of rules and regulations. Obedient to respond to the way Jesus is asking us to respond. And there are two ways to respond to the Sermon on the Mount. So you've been with us all year, and we come to the very end. Two ways we can respond. There are those who hear this sermon and build their house on the sand. That's trying to reach God on their own. Now, to build your house on the rock means to admit that you need the rock. (laughs) Do you see that? To build your house on the rock means to admit that you're lost without the rock. This was completely countercultural in Jesus' day. The crowds understood this. The crowds understood how countercultural and how radical this teaching was. Look at their reaction in verses 28 and 29. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, so when he, he finished the Sermon on the Mount... 
we hear that the crowds were astonished at his teaching. They were stunned. They were, they were shocked. It was a total paradigm shift. Verse 29, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Well, how do you know you're starting to get it? Well, friend, are you astonished at Jesus' teachings? Well, the crowds were stunned. Jesus was, was, was turning everything and flipping everything upside down. How you pray, why you pray, how you give, why you give. Why you do good things, why you serve him, why, why, why. Jesus has turned our motivations completely upside down, upside down to what the world was thinking. And the crowds were stunned. They were stunned because Jesus taught as one who had authority because he is the one who has all authority. Well, here's how you know you're starting to get it. Well, you're amazed. And the crowd were shocked out of their senses. And so, friend, do you recognize Jesus as having authority? He taught as having a special kind of authority, and he proved it at the end of his life when he died on the cross to save us from our sins. And on the third day, he rose from the dead proving that authority. Matthew tells us that the crowd was amazed and impressed by Jesus' authority. But do you see what Matthew left out? Did, did you notice it? He never tells us if the crowd obeyed or not. Well, they thought it was the best sermon they'd ever heard. But how did they respond? Friend, maybe you've been coming to our gatherings at Redeemer Church for quite some time now. Maybe you've been here for the duration of the Sermon on the Mount since September. Maybe you've been listening to Jesus' teaching. Maybe you've been amazed by Jesus' teaching. Maybe you've even been impressed by his words. Well, the question you're left with after all of this, after this whole year, is this. What will you do with the Sermon on the Mount in your life? there are two ways to live, just two. It's to be obedient, it's to enter the narrow gate, follow the path that leads to Christ. It's to build your house on the rock. The way you do that is by leaving everything else behind. It's putting away anything you tried to do to earn your way to God. And instead, you place your faith in Jesus to save you to repent of your sin of self-sufficiency, to say, Father, I tried to do it on my own, but I'm not going to try anymore. There's a path that leads to death. There's a path that leads to life. Jesus says, you can come to him, ask for forgiveness, and he will take you to life. It's to say with the songwriter, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. My friends, there are two ways to live. Choose the way to God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we praise you for Christ, the solid rock. We pray that we as a church would choose life that we would reject the ways of this world to follow you. Help us now as we take part in communion, would we honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.